0: Um, If you remember two weeks back we had just got into Aristotle um, and we were talking about um, major concepts that he introduces in his metaphysics, um, ideas of telos, um, that everything in the universe is created with a intended design um, and that virtuous individuals will eventually reach their design by being steeped in the virtues, wisdom, courage, moderation, temperance. Um, He also talks about this constant movement of everything in nature, from actuality to potentiality. Um, And all these major concepts of Aristotle, um, at least his big philosophical concepts, come in his work, The Metaphysics, which is obviously that which comes after the physics. Um, And the last thing that we want to talk about today, um, which is going to be very profitable uh, for the Church in Aristotle's Metaphysics, is his Doctrine of the Four Causes. Um, And the reason that the Doctrine of the Four causes is so beneficial is because it's going to eventually lead Aristotle to the first formation of what's known as the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Um, And when I teach Intro to Philosophy or any kind of course that I cover Aristotle in, usually I use getting to his metaphysics as a jumping off point to just give all the arguments for the existence of God. Um, because from Aristotle's cosmological argument, he eventually gives the first formation of the teleological argument for the existence of God. And then post-Aristotle, um, when Aristotle dies some 300 years before Christ, um, there's no real new philosophy that develops um, in the strictly philosophical sense of the word until Descartes in about 1595. So you're talking about a 2,000-year gap um, and we know from modern scholarship that that's due to a lot of uh, pejorative scholarship where we don't categorize anything that was done in the Middle Ages as philosophical because it was done within the universities and within the church by guys like St. Anselm and Dun Scotus and St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, but what we're going to do today is we're going to study Aristotle's doctrine of the four causes and then from there give the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, Anselm's argument from power, Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God, and then finally, the most fruitful, in my opinion, argument for the existence of God, um, Van Til's transcendental presuppositional um, apologetics approach. Um, so, a lot of stuff to get into today. Um, Aristotle's metaphysics starts off in a very, very unique way. He starts off the metaphysics in Book Alpha. The whole book has uh, the Greek alphabets with alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon. Um, but Book Alpha of the metaphysics actually starts off with an epistemology. And if you remember back to the first lecture, um, epistemology is just a big word for the study of how we know things, on what basis we know things, and how much we can possibly know. So Aristotle starts off his metaphysics with an epistemology. He wants to know how much we can possibly know, what true knowledge consists of. And Aristotle realized that true knowledge must consist of knowledge of causes. If we simply just know that things happened, that's not a true knowledge. Like if I said, well, tell me, Mr. Niffin, tell me, do you, do you know about World War II? And if you could tell me some dates and some facts, maybe you have a cursory knowledge of World War II, but a real knowledge of World War II would be what caused all those events to happen? What caused that to happen, which caused this to happen, which caused that to happen? So Aristotle wanted to figure out what are the not, What is the nature of causes? And Aristotle sets out to do this in his doctrine of what has become known as the four causes. And Aristotle thought that all causes of things could be reduced to one of four. Either the final cause, the formal cause, the material cause, or the efficient cause. Um, now, for an easy example, the one that I would give to my class on this to understand what Aristotle means, he says, imagine you walk to the edge of a cliff. And you take a rock, and you throw the rock off the edge of the cliff. And you say, what caused that rock to land where it landed? He says, well, there's four different causes for that. Well, you have the material cause is clearly the stone that you're using. Because what you're throwing is going to depend on where it lands, right? Because I throw that stone, if I would have thrown a feather at the same time, would it have landed at the same spot? No, so clearly what you're throwing is one of the causes, the material cause. He says the formal cause would be the lie of the land. If the hill is very, very steep and sharp, the stone will fall relatively further down. But if it's a slow gradation, the stone's going to stop at a certain spot because the ground caused it to stop. So that would be the formal cause of why the stone landed there. So you have the material cause, you have the formal cause. He says you have the efficient cause which is more or less the push or the pusher who's throwing the rock if i get up there and i throw the rock it's going to land in one spot if justin verlander or sandy koufax throws the rock it's going to land in a different spot right because they have more force behind it so that would be the efficient cause and then the final cause would be what aristotle says the stone's desire to reach the lowest possible point or what we would now call today Gravity, right? the stone's desire to reach the final point. So there's different causes for why the stone landed in that point. Aristotle said it's very imperative that we limit the number of causes, because if true knowledge consists of knowing what caused something, we must limit the number of causes, because if there was an infinite number of causes, we could never have full knowledge of anything. Because Aristotle postulates, and rightly so, he says, the human mind is finite, And if there was an infinite number of causes, we would never have true knowledge of anything. So we must limit the number of causes. But while Aristotle is limiting the number of causes to four, final, formal, material, efficient, he realizes there must be some cause that was not caused. And this is what leads Aristotle to the early formations of what has now become known as the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Aristotle simply realizes through his scientific research is that matter cannot be created or destroyed, and yet we have matter. So something must have been uncaused, which causes all other causalities. So something must be eternally self-existent. And the easy catchphrase for the cosmological argument for the existence of God is, there must be an uncaused cause. Now, theists, and atheists alike both believe this. They both believe that something is eternally self existent. Now, if you're an atheist sitting in the room, you're probably not because you're here, but if you're in my class and I say this, if you're an atheist sitting in the room and I give you the cosmological argument for the existence of God, and I say, things cannot come from nothing, yet there are things, so something must be eternally self existent, therefore, Jesus Christ is Lord you're probably going to look at me and say, not really convinced. And why? Why does the cosmological argument for the existence of God fail, although there is logical necessity to it? What's the major problem for it? Why has the world not been convinced of the truth of the revelation of Jesus as given in the cosmological argument for the existence of God? What's wrong with that argument? What's the problem with it? The argument is not specific at all, right? You say, there must be an uncaused cause, therefore it's Jesus. Well, that's a huge metaphysical leap to make right there, right? Something must be eternally self-existent, but that does not mean it's the triune God of the Bible. The argument simply states something must be eternally self-existent. It could be Allah. It could be Vishnu. It could be the God of the Old Testament, right? It could be. But it could also be, as many atheists say, the FSM, a flying spaghetti monster. When I was up at Albany, many of my professors on their laptops, they had uh, little bumper stickers that they put on the back of their laptops. It said FSM. And they claimed that any argument that you could give for the existence of God, you could also posit for the existence of a flying spaghetti monster. And clearly, with the cosmological argument for the existence of God, you could do that. Right? Something must be eternally self-existent, therefore the flying spaghetti monster was the thing that is eternally self-existent and started everything else. But the argument is good in the fact that at least it starts us off saying something has eternality to it. Now if you talk to the leading evolutionary biologists, right, and you've watched the, uh, the collision debate with, with, with Dawkins or with uh, Hitchens and Doug Wilson and whatnot, eventually you'll get guys like Richard Dawkins to admit, well, how did that first thing, the uncaused thing, get there? And he'll say, I don't know, maybe aliens dropped it there, right? And you're like, really? You're, you're a sci- The world's greatest scientist, and you're going to eventually postulate maybe an alien dropped it there? Well, really what they want to say is, anything but a God that's going to put restrictions on my life, right? An alien's not going to put moral imperatives on my life, so I'd rather say that started the first thing. But that gives us the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Once again, we see... There's some force to it, but nothing really, really binding to it. Um, Aristotle is also somewhat responsible for the early formations of what is known as the teleological argument for the existence of God. Um, And all of us from the last lecture should be familiar with the idea of the teleological argument for the existence of God comes from the Greek word telos, which means design or purpose. And this is basically the argument that states the universe exhibits such design that there must be something or someone who designed it it does not seem like this could just be the work of blind evolution that there had to be some guiding force behind this all right this would be like the argument from psalm 19 right the heavens declare the glory of god the skies proclaim the work of his hand right that would be the argument for the teleological argument for the existence of god and you see this argument played out over and over again in a lot of Hollywood movies, but they don't want to give it the real Christian slant to it. So you see this very, very strange, mystical version of the teleological argument for the existence of God. Um, Has anyone seen the really, really poor movie um, American Beauty? You saw American Beauty back in the day, Kevin Spacey, right? And when I was younger, probably like a freshman in college, the movie's kind of artsy and you think it's deep and really, really cool, so I was like all into the movie and I thought it was awesome. And you grow up a little and realize that it's typical Hollywood propaganda, that every middle America family is secretly evil and lusting after their neighbors and doing all kinds of perverse, horrible things. Um, kind of a, a way to just disintegrate the nuclear family movie. Um, but in the movie, you see this really strange, quirky, eccentric, artistic character. Um, and he goes around all the time secretly filming people when they're not watching and secretly filming everything and he's got you go into his house and he's got tapes everywhere of all these weird things he's filmed and there's this one girl that he's attracted to in the movie and he calls her into his room one day and he says I want to show you the most beautiful thing I've ever filmed anyone that's seen the movie remember the scene He says I want to show you the most beautiful thing I've ever filmed and he po- pops in the video I think it's a VHS this is time the movie's kind of old um, pops in the VHS and on the screen comes a piece of trash, um, a garbage paper bag that's blowing in the wind, and it's dancing around in the wind and blowing, and the artsy music comes on in the background, and the kid says, one day I was outside, and this bag, it just started dancing with me for 15 minutes, it didn't just blow away, it seemed to have a pattern, a design to it, and it made me feel Like, I'm not alone in the universe. That there has to be some purpose to everything because of the dancing trash in the wind. Now, this is as close as Hollywood will get you to saying, all right, yeah, there's some design to things, right? The trash blowing in the wind. Now, anyone that's seen the, anyone here seen Family Guy before? You've watched Family Guy, I'll show you my ignorance by saying that I've watched Family Guy. Um, But Family Guy actually does a great parody of this scene of American Beauty. You have Peter. Um, the father, the, the dunce father, and he's supposed to be out watching his young son Stewie ride a tricycle for the first time he's going to be riding a bike and he's supposed to be videotaping him. But Peter gets distracted because he sees a bag dancing in the wind and they start playing the same music they play in the American Beauty clip and Peter starts watching the bag and saying, oh my goodness it's so beautiful. It makes me feel like I'm not alone in the universe. And then all of a sudden the screen pans up to God in heaven and you see this bearded figure that looks down on on Peter and says, do you have any stinking idea how intricate your circulatory system is? And it cuts out and it ends the scene. And it it was Family Guy actually saying, look how stupid that version of the teleological argument is. If you want to argue from design, don't look at the dancing bag blowing in the wind. The world is riddled with complex design. How many functions in your body have to be going properly right now for you not to die? right? That is complex, right? That would be an argument from design. Um, Now, the teleological argument for the existence of God has found new life and footing in the uh, intelligent design or the ID community, right? People that are arguing from intelligent design. So a modern conception or a modern version of an argument like the teleological argument for the existence of God comes in things like the anthropic principle. Anyone familiar with that? I know Mr. Harwood over here is because he's been teaching it to, uh, to these guys, right? So you've probably heard some of this stuff before, Ben, right? You've been hearing this from his class. Put him on the spot. So the anthropic principle... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're failing them, Matt. <laughs> the anthropic principle um, is basically a high-tech version of the argument from design. Um, and I'll give you my very, very basic understanding of science right now. Uh, the Anthropic Principle basically says, let's look at the origins of the universe. Um, science says the universe is roughly 13.6, 13.7 billion years old. Right, That's the figure we have. So 13.6, 13.7 billion years ago, there existed a mathematical point nothing. Right? Something was there because something must have always been because something can't come from nothing. That's the, the cosmological argument. But 13.6 billion years ago, there's this mathematical point nothing what scientists call a cosmic hydrogen bomb, right? And this cosmic hydrogen bomb is ready to go off and it explodes, right, the Big Bang. And when something explodes, you have this massive hydrogen bomb of heat. What's gonna happen when something's really hot? It expands, right? So it expands and it expands and it expands. And as it expands and it gets further away from the center source of heat, it cools. And when something cools, what happens? It condenses. So the universe is this cosmic hydrogen bomb, blows up, goes out, slowly starts to condense back. Now, the interesting thing that the anthropic principle plays on is the idea that when this cosmic hydrogen bomb went off, there were only two elements in the world, in the universe. Two elements. And these elements were hydrogen, the universe was three-quarters hydrogen, and helium, one-quarter helium. Now, right off the bat, all of you should say, well, there's a huge problem here. Because if there's only two elements and something can't come from nothing, we know we need more elements for life, right? Namely, oxygen, and even more important, carbon, right? You can't have life without carbon. We actually need 30 elements at least for life. But when the universe blows up, we have two. We have hydrogen and we have helium. Well, as the universe cools and starts to condense back, stars are formed, and as it starts to condense back, things heat up, and elements are formed out of helium and hydrogen, all the other elements that we need. Well, scientists, when they started to study this, are trying to find out, well, how did we get other elements, namely carbon, from just these two elements? Well, what they found out is if you get three helium nuclei to bond together, you can get carbon-12, and then we can get life from there. But the problem is, in order to get three helium nuclei to bond together, you first need to get two helium nuclei to bond together. And so these two helium nuclei bond together, which is very, very possible to do. And when they bond together, though, they form a substance known as beryllium. And any of you that study chemistry know beryllium, at least from what I've read about it, I haven't studied this. I've just read these things. So this could just all be lies. (laughs) But when beryllium is formed... Beryllium is this crazy, elusive, very, very flaky substance. It doesn't want to stay around for long. And as soon as beryllium forms, it disperses and breaks up again. It doesn't want to be there. But in order for that third helium to get there, we need somehow for beryllium to stay beryllium for a little bit longer. Well, what scientists, namely Fred Hoyle, in the uh, mid-20th century found out was, well, there's only one way that two Helium nuclei form beryllium, and we can get the third helium nuclei to stick to it, is if we have something known as resonance. And any scientists out there know what resonance is? The The violins? I did not know that. Resonance in the scientific terminology is basically an enhancement or an enhanced effect a speed-up process. Certain elements have it, where at a certain degree, a certain temperature, and a certain level of energy, elements can speed up really fast for whatever reason, and then they can bond. And we find out that beryllium has this ability of resonance at a certain temperature, at a certain energy level. And if the laws of physics were one tick different, it wouldn't be possible. Now when Fred Hoyle discovered this, Fred Hoyle was a staunch atheist, he discovered this and he says, he was a British man, he says, the universe is a put-up job. He goes, the universe is a put-up job. I don't want to believe in a God, but that doesn't happen. We can't get that to happen. It's too intricately designed. There's no way. So that's just a modern version of There's so much design in the universe, but you can see it all over the place. Look at human beings, look at the mountains, look at the stars. That's the teleological argument for the existence of God. Now, both of those stem off of Aristotle's metaphysics. And then when we get to the Middle Ages, when we get guys like St. Anselm and St. Thomas Aquinas, there's lots and lots of work that is done on these arguments for the existence of God. Uh, St. Anselm most famously uh, publishes his Monologian and his Proslogion in 1076. So you're talking about 1,300 years after Aristotle now, where these great church fathers and philosophers and theologians are still working on these ideas that Aristotle had first postulated. Um, in Anselm's Monologian and Proslogion, they're basically two discourses on metaphysics. They're two great works of trying to prove the existence of God. And he starts off, Anselm, with an argument that is really, really simple, but really, really good for what it accomplishes. And this is St. Anselm's famous argument from power. Now, Anselm was questioned by somebody. He says, All these arguments that you're reworking, these Aristotelian arguments, the cosmological and the teleological arguments, you say that they are proofs for the existence of your God, this God of the Bible. But how can we be sure that these arguments aren't proofs for the existence of multiple gods? How come your God can't be true, and Allah be true too, and Vishnu be true, and the flying spaghetti monster be true too? How come all of them can't simultaneously be God, right? So this is like the, like the Oprah version of an interlocutor, right? This is the Oprah question, all, all gods are the same, right? All paths lead to this universal oneness, right? This one God. And Anselm started to think about this question. Could there be multiple different gods? And Anselm says, well, if there were multiple different gods, then all of those gods would certainly share something in common. They would share in common the power to be self-existent, right? Because God is the greatest thing and he's self-existent because if God was caused by something, he wouldn't be God. So all, if there were multiple gods all of them commonly share the power to be self-existent. But if all of them share the power to be self-existent, then are they individually the greatest thing? No, the power to be self-existent would be greater than any of them individually. So this is where Anselm postulates that no, there cannot be multiple gods, there can be one god. And this one god is not something that has the power to be self-existent. This god... Is power right that's why we say what is God God is infinite eternal powerful God is power right we often anthropomorphize God and think of God as something that has power or a man that has power no 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 God is power and Anselm's argument is great in the fact that it ends polytheism right it's a logical deduction that reduces polytheism to nonsense it can't be right so if there is a God Now, it doesn't prove that there is one. But if there is a God, Anselm postulates, it must be one. This God is singular. So that's a huge achievement, moving away from the cosmological and the teleological argument to postulate that this God is singular. He is one. Now, Anselm gives a couple other arguments. Anselm was a Platonist. He fell on the Platonic line of school. So he also gave an argument from goodness and he says, I look out in the world and I see multiple things that I call good. I see you helping an old woman across the street and I see a student not cheating on an exam and I see a husband being faithful to his wife and I say, good, good, good. And they're all randomly different things. Well, if all these different things we can call good, Anselm says, there must be some higher goodness which we're appealing to, that thing must be God. So once again, God would not be something that does good. God would be goodness. Goodness. So God is power, God is goodness, and Anselm gives a couple of these arguments, and I'm giving you the skeleton version of these arguments, but he sets out, after he gives these arguments, he says, I want an argument that could be undoubtable, that nobody could disbelieve, and these arguments other people can disbelieve. So he sets out to argue his famous argument, which he wants to be 100% a priori true, Now, a priori is an epistemological distinction. Um, We know everything in the world one of two ways. We know it a priori, or we know it a posteriori. A priori simply means it's something that we know prior to experience. We don't need experience of that thing to know it's true. A posteriori is something that we know only after we've experienced that thing. So an example of something a priori true would be all triangles are three-sided figures. That's an a priori statement, because I don't need to experience every triangle in the world to know that it's three-sided. If Matt comes up to me and says, well, Justin, there's a triangle that I have at my house, I don't say, let me examine it to see if it has three sides. No, because if it doesn't have three sides, then it's, it's not a triangle. So it's something that we know without having to experience it, a priori, or something. sometimes a priori statements are called tautologies, things which are true by logical structure. Anselm wanted to get away from a posteriori arguments because he says a posteriori arguments are oftentimes impactful for the person that's experienced them, but they're not impactful for the person that hasn't experienced them. So what kind of an argument for the existence of God would be a posteriori? What would be an argument for God's existence that comes only after experience? Well, yeah, well, you, you wouldn't be able to relay that to anyone. But yeah, death, you could experience whether it's true or not. That'd be the great test. But an a posteriori argument for the existence of God would be something like, my grandmother was suffering with cancer. The doctor says she would die in a week. The next time we went back in, the cancer was gone. I've experienced God, therefore I believe him. Or you have some kind of spiritual moment yourself. I felt God's spirit come to me, right? Well, that's great for you. But if you relay that to somebody else and you say, well, this is why you should believe in God, because I was sitting in my room one day and I felt the presence of God, they're going to be like, "Eh, (laughs) that's good for you, but what does that do for me? It doesn't do anything for me. This is what William James, the great American philosopher, pragmatist, in his book, The Will to Believe, says you need to present things to people which are live options. If an experience happens to you, he says you're justified in believing that because it happened to you. But that won't be a good reason to accept it for somebody else, right? If you give somebody your personal testimony and it's about some non-factual thing, some feeling that happened to you, you're not going to convince God. You're not going to convince that person that God did that thing. They're going to look at you and say, that's nice. You were doing drugs. That's nice. You're strange. That's nice. You were hallucinating. But they won't believe it for themselves. And they're justified in not believing that because it didn't happen to them. So Anselm sets out and says, what can I do? Can I give an argument for the existence of God that's a priori, without experience, or something that can just logically deduce God's existence from? And this is known as Anselm's famous ontological argument for the existence of God. Now, the ontological argument for the existence of God has actually, um, it's very fitting what Pastor Vance was talking about today, has actually gotten a lot of recent exposure again because of the guy he was talking about today, Alvin Plantinga. Alvin Plantinga, this great logician, has rehashed Anselm's ten well, thousand-year-old argument—not uh, ten thousand, thousand-year-old argument, ten hundred-year-old argument—in um, what, what is called now as Plantinga's modal, modal ontological argument for the existence of God. It's an argument from logic, and the argument basically goes like this: First premise, Anselm states, God is the being beyond which nothing greater than can be conceived. God is the thing beyond which nothing greater than can be conceived. If you can think of something greater than God, then what? That's God, God, right? So anyone that objects right away, I don't think God's the greatest thing. All right, what do you think's the greatest thing? All right, that thing's God. And if you can think of something greater than that, that thing would be God. So there's nobody, atheist or theist, has any problem with the first premise. God is the thing beyond which you can't think of anything greater. That's just the definition of God. So that's premise one. Premise two, he says, it is better, greater, or more real to exist both in the mind and reality than simply in the mind alone. So it's greater or more real to exist in the mind and reality than simply in the mind alone. This is like the example I give in my philosophy classes. Is, um, if you remember back to the early... Uh, game show Survivor when you have all the people on the island right and they're starving whether or not they're actually starving who knows but they're supposedly starving on the island right and they haven't had food in X amount of days and that you'll, you'll see a little video interview with the person and they'll be like well I know I'm starving but you know what I do when I'm really really hungry I picture that pizza place back in Chicago my favorite place and it gives me a little bit of comfort okay that's fine that's that's something that can help you out right to, to mentally try to overcome that hunger but how much greater or more real would it be if the host then said here's the pizza right that would be way better for that person it'd be way more real so it's better or more real to exist not only in your mind but also in your mind and in reality that would be a greater thing third premise i have an idea of god in my mind therefore god exists Now, right off the bat, you're like, this argument stayed around for a thousand years? I'm not convinced that God exists. Well, he says, if God is the greatest thing, God must exist. That's basically what the argument says. Because if God didn't exist, could you think of a better God? Yeah, that same God that actually exists. Kierkegaard rehashes this argument, right? And he says... Imagine a God who created and sustains the whole world, right? Who loves and cares for you, who came and died and suffered for you. Now imagine that that God is real. He says that would be greater, right? And if God is the greatest thing, then he must exist. Now once again, if you're sitting in the audience, you're an atheist, be the devil's advocate, what's your problem with this argument? You're not convinced by it. Anselm wanted this something that the whole world, would it's a logical proof, it's a necessity that God exists. What's the problem with the argument? God is the being beyond which nothing greater than can be conceived. I have an idea. It's better to exist in the mind of reality than just the mind alone. I have an idea of God, God exists. Once again, it's not specific, right? It could be the flying spaghetti monster. Love, love is the thing. Sure, right? God. So if love is the greatest thing, then love is God. Or if Vishnu is the greatest thing, Vishnu is God. Or if your PlayStation 3 is the greatest thing, PlayStation 3 is God. It's not specific to any argument, once again. The greatest philosophical attack on this argument comes some 700 years later in the 18th century by Immanuel Kant. And Kant gives two critiques to the argument. First, he says the argument is circular or it begs the question because the first premise is God is. He says, then throw out the rest of the argument because the conclusion is therefore God is. So God is, therefore God is. You can't start off the first premise of your argument assuming God exists to then get to the conclusion that God exists. He says that's circular reasoning. He also gives one of the f- most famous phrases in a philosophic history in attacking Anselm's argument. He says, existence, anyone know the phrase? Existence is not a predicate. Existence is not a predicate. And all that means, that's fancy language to say, existence doesn't tell us anything about the thing that it's said to give existence to. Existence doesn't inform us in any way. It doesn't add anything new to our minds or to our imagination." Right, if I were to, I don't think any of you have been to my house before, so if I were to tell you, all right, this is what my house looks like. You walk up the steps, and it's a very, very small front deck, and you open the door, and you walk into my living room, and to the left, there's a TV, and then I have my couch on one wall, and on the back wall, I have a picture hanging, and this house is real. Did any of you, when I said, and this house is real, say, oh, now I can picture it? I couldn't picture it before you said it was real, but now you said it exists, so now it's clearer. Now it predicates something to me. Of course not. Existence doesn't, or the real way to say it is existence is not a real predicate. It doesn't tell us anything real about the argument. Um, So that's a, a quick crash course in the classic arguments for the existence of God, the cosmological argument for the existence of God, the teleological argument for the existence of God, Anselm's argument from power, which is great at getting rid of the idea of polytheism. And then finally, Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God. Now, all those arguments have certain flaws to them, and one of the name, namely the biggest flaw, is they don't postulate anything specific. That's what's very, very unique and really, really earth-shattering about Van Til's presuppositional apologetics. Um, Now, most of you being uh, brought up or been in this church for a while, you're probably familiar with Van Til's work. Um, And his argument is sometimes called the Transcendental Argument for the Existence of God. Um, They used to, or scholars used to refer to it as the Presuppositional Argument for the Existence of God, Uh, but they've moved away from calling it the Presuppositional Argument for the Existence of God after the birth of this whole postmodern phenomenon where everyone realizes people come to all arguments with presuppositions. And Van Til's argument is much more than that. So a lot of people nowadays at the seminary where he taught, which was Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, um, call it covenantal apologetics. Um, Because basically, they're just saying, Van Til is looking at the covenantal promises of God and arguing for God's existence from there. Now, the unique part about Van Til's argument is it's going to be a philosophical attack instead of a philosophical defense. So this is going to say, basically, without accepting this position, you are not only theologically you're not lost, but you're intellectually lost. So it's a theological attack on the non-believer. Van Til's going to try to pro- prove not only that there is no hope of salvation outside of Christ, but you actually have zero hope of intellectual epistemological grounding outside of Christ. You can't be an academic without accepting the principles of Christ. You can't use reason. You can't use science. You can't use morality. You can't use or appeal to logic without first accepting Christ. So this is a radical version of apologetics. And it's an argument that is very, 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 very difficult to deal with for the non-believer. Now, the challenge of this covenantal or presuppositional apologetics is to make the non-believer be epistemologically self-conscious. Based on your epistemology, based on the way that you view the world, how can you know the things that you say that you know? And what Van Til is going to try to prove is, You can't, so you have to accept the Christian position in order to accept the things that you want to accept. He says, the non-believer constantly appeals to things like science, morality, logic, and reason, but based on their worldview, what are these things? What is logic? What is reason? What is science? What is morality based on their specific worldview? what are they? Well, these things, for the Christian, for the believer, science, morality, logic, reason, these are all what we would call universal invariants. Now, it's just a fancy way for saying there are things that apply to everyone in the same way, and they do not vary, right? Like the principles of logic, the principles of mathematics. We all believe that logic and mathematics are universal and invariable. Two plus two equals four, and it doesn't equal four for me, and somewhere else in China equals five for them. No, it's universal. It applies to everyone, and it's invariant. It can't change. In a billion years from now, two plus two will equal four. Matt? I remember Greg Bonson's saying is non-material. Yeah, non-material, universal, invariant. Yeah, Bonson's. Those are Bonson's words from his uh, famous The Stein Debate. Yeah, one of of the ways. Yeah, so usually these things are non-material, they're universal, and they don't vary. Now, for the atheist, or for the strict materialist, the person that says that initial cause of things is just that matter is eternally self-existent, where is the realm of those things which are universal, apply to everybody, cannot vary, and are not made of material? Where are those things? which would mean what? So they're not universal. They are variant, and they are material. But is that the way we function in the world? Do we function as if logic is something that is variant, that it can change, that it can manipulate, that in the words of Nietzsche, it can transvalue, that logic can be different from one person to the next? What's the huge problem if logic, science, morality, mathematics can be different from person to person? We can't have a conversation, and we definitely can't have a debate, because what, is, what are debates defined by? Standard. A standard appeals to reason and logic. You're saying, no, Ms. Vance, you are not arguing reasonably, you are not being logical. <laughs> But if I say this to her, what's what's the approach? All right, she's wrong then. She has to stay within the bounds of logic. But if logic is not invariant, then we can't have a discussion. So what Van Til's gonna say is when the non-believer tries to use reason, let me list the reasons for you that you're wrong. He's borrowing a Christian principle that his epistemology does not allow him to use. He uses a famous analogy, he says anytime the non-believer tries to appeal to reason, logic, any of these universal invariants, he says the unbeliever is like a small child that the father lifts them up and then the child smacks the father in the face. He says the non-believer is being lifted up by Christian principles of reason, science, morality, logic, and then he's trying to beat the father up with those principles. But the principles that don't exist for you. You've denied those principles based on your epistemology. Now, this is a huge assault on atheist morality, atheist logic, atheist reason. Because if you can't appeal to reason and logic to argue, how can you argue? You can't. I think this is where C.S. Lewis's Christianity this, is, this was the very crux of what draw. I'm going to have to take your word for it. It's been like seven years since I've read Mere Christianity. It's been three, three hours since I read I, I, Mere <laughs> So, I, so I, I'm telling you that, that was, that's a very important part uh, for apologetics, that what you just described. Yeah, and, and that's the crux or the cornerstone of Van Til's epistemology or Van Til's apologetics. Now, what Van Til says, he says only the Christian belief system, only their views can rescue science, morality, and logic and make them coherent in any way. He says when the non-believer appeals to using reason, what they're doing is they're committing the logical fallacy of reification. Now, reification is an informal fallacy where somebody appeals to a concept as if if it is an actual reality. Now, if you are a non-believer, if you're a materialist, what is reason? It's a groundless concept. If you're a theist, what is reason? Reason is rooted in what Van Til would call the self-attesting scriptures, right? Our foundational principle as a Christian is we presuppose, right? So we don't know this for certain, but we presuppose the authenticity of Scripture. And why do we presuppose it? He says we don't presuppose it because, well, we've looked at it archaeologically and we found it's pretty, it's pretty we can accept it. It seems pretty foundational. No, he says that's not why we accept it. We accept it on its own word. We accept it because it's self-attesting. We accept it because the Bible says it's the final standard. Now, that is a presupposition. But that presupposition rescues the meaningfulness of science, morality, logic, and reason. When you don't hold to that principle, you can't have any of these things. The non-believer's foundational principle is the self, and the self that believes in the non-created character of facts. We have all these things in the world which are just material. They're facts, but if they're non-created then in the words of Aristotle, they don't have a telos. They don't have a design to them. So when they interact with each other, they don't interact in a meaningful way. They don't tell us anything that would be an imperative. They're just a bunch of facts. But if facts are created and ordained and preordained by God and sustained by God, then facts are meaningful. Facts actually can mean something. Reason can be reasonable. Now I'm going to leave you with an analogy that I think is the easiest way if you don't read a lot of Van Til to always remember him. Um, Imagine a situation where there's two people or a couple of people and they're riding on a train and they're taking a nice train ride and they look out on the hillside as they're passing through um, and they see this giant boulders and all these boulders are perfectly formed they're all the exact same size and they spell out you are now entering Wales, right? They perfectly on the hillside spell that out. And the one person looks at the other person and says, wow, that's really cool that somebody went out there with a design and spelled out you are now entering Wales to tell us where we are. And the other person says, well, I believe that randomly over a series of a billion years, that those stones fell down from that mountain up there and happened to fall into the place that spell out you are now entering Wales. Now all of you are like, that's stupid. That couldn't happen, that's impossible. Well, the possibility of that happening is infinitely more likely than the possibility of a human developing, right? Infinitely more possible. And it is possible that that could happen, right? Is it possible that over a billion years in a billion possible universes, that eventually mountains would fall down and spell out you are now entering Wales, (laughs) right? Einstein postulates, he says, the possible plus the infinite equals the necessary. If it's possible, and you give it in an infinite amount of time, it's necessary. Now, there's some scientists that are starting to say, oh, I don't even know if that's true, right? Well, maybe the monkeys typing on the keyboards, producing the works of Shakespeare, I don't know if they could do that. Um, but let's just grant to them that maybe that could happen. So we have two people. One says, somebody with a design put the boulders there. The other person says, they randomly fell over time. At this point, all you have is the teleological argument for the existence of God, right? One looks like design, the other one looks random. Now the person that looks, that says, I believe they've designed, looks at the person that doesn't believe that and says, hey, where are we right now? And the other person says, well, we're in Wales. And he goes, well, if those randomly fell over time, how can you trust the meaningfulness of them? How can you can trust them to be true? And the person would have no reason, no reaction to that if they were designed then you can trust them to have meaning but if not the world is meaningless you cannot trust your cognitive faculties to be telling you the truth how have your cognitive faculties developed they've to survive right you've developed certain habits based on the laws of evolution right to survive but not to tell the truth unless they're guided right you've Adapted principles that are best for your survival, but are they necessarily truth-telling principles? How can you trust your cognitive faculties? How can you trust the reasoning capabilities, right? This is the power. This is the crux of Van Til's argument. It leaves the non-believer in a position where if they even want to have an argument with you, they must accept your principles first, right? They must accept your principles and fight on your playing field. Any questions? So that's a lot of stuff today. A lot of arguments for the existence of God. Cosmological, teleological, ontological argument from power, and Van Til's transcendental argument for the existence of God. Um, Right, as I think it's 2 Peter 3.15, right? Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you, right? And that's a good answer that you can have for somebody. And it's usually an answer, Van Til's argument, that people aren't prepared for. Van uh, Alvin Plantigo, when he was a young man, he started to champion some of these positions in a slightly more scientific manner, and he got himself into a lot of trouble in debates because people were getting angry because they'd come to a debate with Plantinga expecting to hear the ontological argument, and they had answers for that, and then he gives them this, and they're like, whoa, whoa, I wasn't ready for that argument, and he made a lot of people look foolish. Matt? I've heard a, a really concise version of Manfield's argument. Two guys talking, one guy says, life is meaningless, and the guy looks at him and goes, what do you mean? <laughs> perfect example anybody else awesome all right let's close in prayer and get you out of here dear lord thank you for today um thank you for the time that we have to discuss these concepts and to uh, study the servants that you've given us whether they be aristotle or say thomas aquinas or anselm or van Til, and uh to help better know you, to better understand you, and to be prepared to give the answer from the hope that is in all of us. Um, Help us to have a blessed and useful week. In your name we pray. Amen.